Probably the most famous story of my entire life was on the very first day of grade one, when I went to a brand new school, and the teacher. I don't actually remember this. I should add,、uh, this is all hearsay. But apparently, the teacher was going around asking every child to say their name to to introduce themselves, as you might do in grade one. And when she got to me, I said, "I'm AJ." And she was like, "No, what's your real name?" And I was like, "It's AJ." And she was like, "No, like your actual name." And I was like, "It's AJ." And she <laughs> proceeded to announce in front of the whole class that my name is not AJ, which is true. However, I did not know that. Getting discomfortable with acting. I'm named after my uncle Alan, and to avoid confusion, as soon as I was born, they started calling me AJ. But in all seven years of my life, my parents had neglected to mention that AJ was just an abbreviation that stands for Alan Jeffrey. I literally had no idea that my name wasn't AJ, and in front of the whole class, the teacher announced, much to my embarrassment, I assume, that those were initials and that my real name was—I mean, I don't know. Presumably, she had a list with the names on it, so she probably said, "Your name is Alan, <laughs> you idiot." When things didn't go my way, I would get extremely angry. And never was that more true than when I came home from the first day of grade one. And apparently, I came home furious. You didn't tell me that I have two other names. I mean, when you think back to that age, a name is a big deal. Like I wasn't a very good speller. In fact, I'm still not a very good speller. I've always been a terrible speller. So I went from having to just spell A and J. To suddenly having to spell A L L A N and J E F F R E Y. I should note that Jeffrey is my middle name. I'm not like Alan Jeffrey, but still, these two long ass names with all these new letters was extremely intimidating, and I was so embarrassed that I had no idea. My parents have often told stories about when I was a child, and the the key terms are. Hyperactive and moody. Apparently, I was quite a handful. In fact, at some point in my teenage pubescent years, something happened to my body that changed my taste buds, and I went from enjoying the taste of fish to finding fish to be the most disgusting, gag-inducing taste I had ever experienced. And my parents just thought that I was being, you know, moody. So every time we would have dinner and they would cook fish, they'd be like, "AJ, if you're not going to eat your dinner, you should just go to bed." So every time I smelt them cooking fish, I would go directly to bed. I wouldn't even come down to the dinner table, and I eventually wore them down to the point where they started cooking a separate meal just for me every time they cooked fish. Another infamous story was my parents having some kind of dinner party with a bunch of adult guests, and 
one of them came up to me and like pinched my cheek and was like, oh, you're so cute. And I said, I'm going to cut your neck off. I don't know. I was a, I was a macabre child. I, 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 I mean, I was just constantly fascinated with darkness, monsters, gore, death, evil. Like I was the kind of kid who would watch a movie and always relate the most to the villain. And I don't know, like, you know, who can say, but my theory is that somewhere deep down inside, because I sort of subconsciously knew that I was gay, I was preparing myself for the fact that I was bad. And therefore, I became sort of always fascinated by villains, darkness, monstrosity, because I just, I knew that deep down inside there was this quote-unquote monstrosity waiting to be unleashed And so that was just, those were my people. My parents told me they actually bought a book called How to Deal with the Hyperactive Child. However, I hated sports. And my parents would put me into soccer and I would hate it. They would put me into baseball and I would literally just sit in the outfield. I remember staring at things and thinking, maybe if I stare at things long enough, I'll be able to move them with my mind. It never worked. And I certainly wasn't able to use that focus to catch any balls. And I just truly detested baseball and all the other sports. And my parents were at their wits end. What do you do with a super hyperactive kid who hates sports? And apparently, some friend of theirs took them aside one day and whispered to them, probably with a knowing smile, that's the kind of kid you put into acting. And so they did. They immediately shuffled me off to the local youth theater, which I loved. This friend of theirs was absolutely right. And at this youth theater, I met another child actor who was a year older than me. and. Um, Let's call him Devin, because that was, in fact, his name. And Devin and I both started auditioning for film and TV shows. We had the same agent, so we were often being sent out for the exact same roles. However, Devin was this adorable, cherubic blonde with a really cheeky sense of humor and a lot of confidence and charisma. And I always felt like the ugly duckling little brother. In fact, at one point, we were in the same play together called Obsession Cabaret. It was all about the obsessions of young kids and teenagers. And one of the roles that I had been given in this play was to sing a song in the style of Elvis as if I was really obsessed with cars. This, of course, was quite a stretch for me because I couldn't care less about cars And I wasn't really very good at this whole Elvis thing. The whole thing was quite uncomfortable. Nonetheless, when Devin joined the cast, the director gave that song to him. And I was very upset because even though I didn't like that song and I was bad at it, I didn't want to be second fiddle to Devin yet again. And I remember at one point, this was when Devin's acting career was starting to pick up, He kept having to leave rehearsals to, like, shoot something, some TV show, and I would have to fill in. What was interesting was when I filled in for this song, but it was no longer mine, I suddenly didn't care anymore, and 
I didn't have any of the inhibition that I had when I was actually supposed to be doing a good job. And ironically, that made me way better at the song. I could just goof around and ham up the whole Elvis thing. Like, I think the lyrics were like, I really, really need a car, I need a car. And I just, I was so much better at it when I wasn't thinking or trying or being self-conscious, which of course makes sense. But then Devin came back from shooting whatever he was shooting and the song went back to him. And I remember right before this play actually started touring to high schools, the director held sort of an open audition where anyone could challenge anyone else for their role in any given vignette. And she sort of went through the script and was like, okay, does anyone want to audition for this role? Does anyone want to audition for this song? But then for some reason, she skipped over this Elvis-inspired car song which I had secretly been planning to audition for with my new laissez-faire Elvis skills. But when she skipped over it, I, I didn't want to make it obvious that I wanted that role. Because what if I didn't get it? It was one of those classic situations where you pretend like you don't care. Like, I, I don't care, I, whatever, I didn't... Pff, that song? I didn't even like that song. Which, ironically, was true. I didn't like that song. It was more about being chosen, being the best, than it was about genuinely liking something. Which is such a classic microcosm of shame. You're doing things for the wrong reasons. You're not following your passion. You're just trying to prove your value, which is leading you down a path that you don't genuinely like. And while I really enjoyed acting, the structure of auditions is a really unfortunate thing Thing to put a child through, especially a child that's already struggling with shame for various other reasons due to his burgeoning sexuality. Because in an audition scenario, it really is one kid gets chosen. You know, like one kid is the Harry Potter and all the other kids are not good enough. Or, or that's how it feels when you're that age. You can't really determine what the subtleties are. It just feels like you go out for audition after audition after audition, and every time, you are not the one who is good enough. You are not the single boy who is chosen for these roles. Not only that, but when you are chosen for these roles, you are then on television or in a commercial or in a movie, which really does sort of make you appear elevated and better than all the other actors who didn't get that role. So psychologically, it plays right into shame's hierarchical thinking, where some people are at the top and other people like me just aren't good enough. Eventually, my frenemy, Devin, started to get so many TV roles that he actually had to go down to Hollywood, where he was auditioning for Steven Spielberg, apparently. He was in all kinds of teen heartthrob movies. He started to appear on the cover of, like, Tiger Beat, Teeny Bop magazines that I would secretly glance at every time I walked into a 7-Eleven because my sexuality was starting to emerge subconsciously. And this is another classic scenario where my, my brain confused jealousy and attraction. It was like, did I want to be one of those boys on the cover of Teen Beat magazine? Or did I just want them? Around this age, there was an episode of Full House, 
where DJ Tanner has her very first kiss. I don't remember the details very clearly, but she's in the backyard with this cute blonde guy, and they have a, a lovely little kiss, and then he, he bikes off into the night. And that scene had a really big impact on me. I remember I was staying at my grandparents' house for some reason, and we watched it, and then I went to bed, and I was just, the world was full of magic, and I was like, oh, wow, like, that guy is so cool. I, I want to be just like that guy and, like, confidently kiss girls and then bike off into the night. And it wasn't until years later that I thought back to that memory and realized, no, no, no. I didn't want to be the guy in that scenario. I wanted to be the one he was kissing. And I remember one day, my parents took the family to see a movie. And that movie was Casper the Ghost. It starred Christina Ricci in a delightful haunted mansion where an adorable CGI Casper was floating around and they became good friends. And I don't even remember what happens. But then at the very end of the movie, through some kind of elaborate magical spell, I can't remember, Digital Casper turns into a real boy. And who is it? But Devin. There, like 50 feet tall in front of me in this movie theater where I've been transported to a magical land for an hour and a half, there is Devin in all his blonde cherubic glory. And my mind exploded. I don't remember exactly. To this day, I can't exactly say what I was feeling. I mean, it was definitely related to jealousy and probably also related to attraction. But and it wasn't pleasant. It was it was this overwhelmingly small feeling that that the world was this big, incredible place and Devin was the star of it, and I was just but a tiny bit player, a, a, a nobody, a nothing, a, a, an extra, a background performer, or not even, just the audience. I continued trying to act, in high school, I appeared in some Canadian TV shows, and I was one of the leads in an indie Canadian film, and I, I did a lot of voiceover work for two years while I had braces. This was around the time that I started to think that it didn't really matter what I was feeling inside, because I could use my so-called acting abilities to portray whatever I wanted. So, for example, when I was feeling nervous, I would pretend like I was feeling totally confident and cool. Acting was teaching me that perception trumps reality, which, if you've heard my shame series, will sound very familiar, because shame does the exact same thing. The truth is, I never wanted anyone to know what was happening inside of me. First of all, there was my repressed sexuality, which I wasn't even fully aware of, but 
I definitely knew there was something in there that I didn't want to release. And I think that was part of the reason why I was creating this acting facade all the time. Ironically, though, I think that is what made me a subpar actor. Because I could never get in touch with any real feelings, I was keeping everything superficial in order to hide the things that I was fearing deep inside of me. All of this just played into shame's insidious message that what is real is completely determined by the external opinions of other people. What's more, your very value as a human, your, your worth, your lovability, is also in this mindset determined by the opinions of other people. So acting, for me, played right into this paradigm of perception over reality, which just reinforced my shame and gave all of my power away to other people. There were a number of times where I had near misses, like I was the number two, but this other kid got it, and I was like, ah, so close. And probably the biggest number two of all was when I auditioned for a short-lived, maybe there was only one season, TV series for teens called Breaker High. I think it was Canadian. I don't know if anybody remembers Breaker High, but it was essentially saved by the bell, but set on a cruise ship that was a high school. And the concept was that this cruise ship high school would travel all over the world, and these delightful teenagers would get into adventures in France and Peru and Egypt. And I auditioned for one of the characters, and I got a callback, and I got another callback, and then I got another callback, and eventually, I got right to the end of the casting process. So much so that they had actually cast every other role in the TV series except for me. And they, they even had a table read where they brought the entire cast and everyone had signed a contract except me. And we did the table read at which, <laughs> I mean, in my memory, I wasn't very good. <laughs> but maybe, I'm, maybe that's just shame. And I didn't know what was going on, but apparently some of the producers of the show liked me, but one or two hated me. And finally, they went to Toronto, and they discovered a young actor who you may have heard of. His name was Ryan Gosling. So I lost the closest and biggest role that I ever went out for <laughs> to Ryan Gosling, which at the time bothered me because, yet again, he was this adorable blonde angel. <laughs> and actually, he was way better than me. He, he was quite funny in that role, and I had, to, I had to admit, as I watched bitterly from home, oh, that guy's pretty good. I watched with interest as he went on to star as Young Hercules in Young Hercules, kind of a surprising casting choice, I must admit, and then I was kind of blown away when he got cast as the neo-Nazi lead in The Believer. And from there, his career just exploded, and he was in Half Nelson, and he got nominated for Oscars, and then he became, like, the world's biggest movie star. Which, as it was happening, seemed like slap in the face after slap in the face to me. But now, from this point, looking back, I'm like, actually, that's pretty cool. How many people in the world can say that there was a role that came down to them and Ryan Gosling? 
Like, uh, that's, that's some pretty good company, probably. Shortly after the Breaker High fiasco, I quit acting, and I decided to go to film school. Film was so much cooler than acting. Like, acting is so desperate, and, and you have so little power. Like, I want to be a real artist who, like, tells stories. I'm an author. These were the stories that I was telling myself as I transitioned from one giant failure into one completely misguided career choice. The truth is, I never liked making films. It was too stressful. I love watching movies. I even quite enjoy writing movies. But the pursuit of becoming a famous auteur filmmaker was really more about proving myself and combating shame than it was about pursuing my own passion. It was exactly the same as me wanting to win back that stupid song, (laughs) that stupid Elvis song of a kid who really needs a car. Being a kid who really needs a car is in no way authentic to me, and neither is being an auteurist filmmaker. The point is, when you let shame control you, it will guide you down the path that is going to minimize your shame, but not the path that is authentic. And you're probably not going to succeed at minimizing your shame when you're pursuing something that isn't genuinely your passion and isn't genuinely you.